Okay, you on eight. You on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base. Welcome back to EMS Cast, Ross, who did you trick into coming on the podcast today? My name is Justin Harper. Chief Harper is an assistant chief for the Denver Health Paramedic Division and is in charge of training and education for the division. Chief Harper is going to discuss with us a topic that I feel like seems easy on face value, but when you get into the pathophysiology, actually becomes a lot more difficult and complicated to understand. We're talking about diabetes and specifically uh, type 1 diabetes. Chief Harper has a pretty fascinating story that led to his interest in knowing as much as possible about type 1 diabetes. I feel like his story and experiences help highlight some of the big pitfalls we encounter when treating or diagnosing someone with diabetes. About five years ago, um, and almost to the day here, uh, April 28th, five years ago, my youngest son was uh, diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. It was a little bit out of the blue for us. We, uh, my wife and I are both in healthcare. My wife's an RN, a pediatric RN at that. Now I've been a paramedic. I've been in emergency medical services for 25 years. Um, the, the two of us, uh, you know, we're looking at this five-year-old and, uh, and watching him uh, go through this, this sort of cycle of weakness, dehydration, abdominal pain, really a lot of moodiness. And, uh, and neither of us really could put a finger on exactly what was going on. Uh, he had had an upper respiratory infection that required a, a visit to the pediatrician. When we were at the pediatrician, he had had a weight loss, and, and even that didn't, that didn't clue us in uh, on what was going on with him. And, uh, and, and so I think it, it wasn't until he really went into DKA that we started to recognize those sort of characteristic and obvious signs and symptoms. And we had a conversation that, oh, well, th this looks like, so, you know, he's got the three Ps, frequent urination, he's, you know, really thirsty and, and he's really hungry. So, hey, maybe we should take him to the, the pediatrician and get him tested. And it, it, it really, it was a learning experience for us in that we watched this for four or five months and had no idea what was going on. And, and there was nothing that I was taught in school. It was nothing that I had ever uh, encountered in the field or read about or knew what I was looking at, those, those initial signs and symptoms. And so that really is the driver for me to to want to avoid misdiagnosis and to help people really grasp this, the, the concept of type 1 and, and even type 2 diabetes. The chief went on to share some pretty impressive statistics that highlight why recognizing some of the nuances of type 1 diabetes is so important. First off, an estimated 30% of patients with new-onset diabetes are seen by a healthcare provider at least once before diagnosis. In fact, this happened in Liam's case. The second stat, which is important for us to recognize, is that this often does not get diagnosed until the patient enters diabetic ketoacidosis. And this is important because DKA is the most common cause of death in children and adolescents with type 1 diabetes, and it accounts for half of all deaths in diabetic patients less than the age of 24. That's an impressive stat, but how can we as pre-hospital providers help to improve this? I think lots. You know, the thing that we don't always realize we do as pre-hospital providers is we... You know, the 
the thing that we do is we drive the course a lot of times for the emergency department. When we assess a patient, you know, whether we're talking at a clinic, whether we're talking at their home, a school, if we, if we walk into a situation and we find a child or an adult or uh, a patient who is weak, dehydrated with abdominal pain, and we go down, and, and it's perfectly acceptable to look at that patient and have a list of di uh, differentials that don't include rule out new onset type 1 diabetes because we just haven't, I haven't thought that way as a healthcare provider, and so a lot of people don't. But if we, if we take that weakness, dehydration, abdominal pain patient, and we give the handoff report at the emergency department, hey, 26-year-old male, weak, dehydrated, abdominal pain, we started an IV, started some fluid on him, that's going to drive the course in the emergency department. The, the report that the uh, RN is going to give to the physician is going to be the same, weakness, dehydration, abdominal pain. They're going to give a little bit of fluid, and, and maybe that patient's going to look a lot better after some fluid. And we can kind of talk about the, the pathophysiology behind that, but, but really the potential for misdiagnosis starts with our healthcare providers in the field. And, and so we need to be diligent about this. We need to be not afraid to check blood sugars is really the bottom line. It's probably starting to feel like we're beating a dead horse here, but I am super excited and get a lot of joy out of beating this dead horse. But this is so important, the pre-hospital handoff. I can't agree more, Matt. All right. The chief began alluding to some of the pathophysiology of type 1 diabetes and understanding this pathophysiology is extremely important in understanding how to recognize this disease and how to treat it. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease where the immune system begins to attack the insulin-producing cells of the pancreas, those beta cells. This attack on those beta cells, it's not something that happens overnight. It's a slow process. It's something that happens, you know, over a long period of time. For some people, and in my son's case, once he diminished the amount of insulin that he was producing uh, and he had it en ended up having to take insulin, he was still producing a small amount of insulin for almost a year. It's called the honeymoon phase. And so it's a good example of just how long this process can take from start of immune attack on those beta cells to complete destruction. And that's what type 1 diabetes is. It is complete destruction of those beta cells, those insulin producing cells. And so what we saw in him was a slow but sure progression of diminishing insulin. This is why type 1 diabetes can present with such vague and seemingly mild symptoms. You don't just wake up one morning without any insulin anymore and are suddenly very symptomatic. It's a slow, slow progression over time. And understanding what that insulin does for us can help us understand what is happening when the body can no longer produce it. So insulin's job is not only to facilitate transport of those glucose molecules uh, out of the bloodstream, right? So we're helping to transport glucose, but we're also helping to get glucose where it needs to go, whether we're talking about the cells of the body, insulin and the cells working together to convert that glucose into ATP, a usable form of energy. We're also storing, so insulin helps to store whatever's left in the bloodstream as glycogen in the liver, and then glycogen in the muscle tissue, uh, and, and also uh, storage of fat. So whatever's really left over, anything we put in our body, we are going to store it, and we're going to store that energy. And so basically, in my son's case, the first thing that we started to see was his body's reaction to this high blood glucose levels. He's starting to diminish his ability to store that energy. And so he's got glucose backing up in the bloodstream. And in a normal blood glucose level, as you know, 80 to 120. And so when we start to get over the 120 range, we increase osmotic diuresis and the body wants to get rid of that sugar. 
And it's that process right there um, that we started to see those signs and symptoms within my son. It's this phenomenon in type 1 diabetes that causes a sort of contradiction. There's a lack of insulin bringing glucose into the cell in order to utilize it for energy production. So on a whole, they're malnourished, and they often describe weight loss, uh, but they're eating, and they have a really, really incredible appetite. And the reason that this is happening is because their body is starving because they can't use sugar for energy. Yet when you check their blood sugar, they are hyperglycemic because that glucose is backing up into the bloodstream. Remember, when we do blood work, we're checking the levels of something that's in the blood, and that does not reflect the levels of what's in the cells. So when you see a high glucose in the bloodstream, that means there's no glucose in the cells, and those cells are starving for energy. That's a great point in distinction. And as Justin said, if the glucose in our bloodstream exceeds its physiologic range, then our body will begin using alternative methods in order to eliminate it. The main mechanism is through the urinary system. But if we have large molecules exiting through the kidneys, this leads to osmotic diuresis. Osmotic diuresis. Osmotic diuresis is the increase in urine production caused by the presence of certain substances in the kidney tubules that pull water out with them and make you pee a lot more. To simplify it, we're pulling good electrolytes out. So, so we're depleting good electrolytes, we're depleting fluid uh, in, a, in an attempt to rid the body of that excess sugar. And so what did he look like? He looked like a five-year-old who was weak, dehydrated. He had abdominal pain occasionally. And I think that was associated with the, the electrolyte disturbance. And, and this process was really, really tricky to understand because he would drink a ton of water, he would flush all that excess glucose out, normalize his blood sugar levels, and he would look fine because the cells of the body were still getting nourishment. He's still producing enough insulin to deliver glucose to the cells of the body, those, the cells that require that oxygen and glucose for cellular metabolism. He's not in a starvation state. He's in this strange limbo that for a lot of people lasts anywhere between four to eight months, uh, where, where, and, it, and it can be even longer. But on average, what, what I've learned is that it's, this, is, this period's right around four to eight months before you start to diminish the insulin to the point where you go into a starvation state. And now you're talking DKA. And, and so when you talk about new onset type 1 diabetes, there's a huge potential for misdiagnosis there. Because weakness, abdominal pain, dehydration, even a small little bit of weight loss in a child doesn't necessarily trigger the thought process of ruling out type 1 diabetes or checking a blood sugar. And it should. All right, so we have a better understanding now of the onset of type 1 diabetes, but let's talk about treatment. Insulin regimens are incredibly mystifying for many providers, not just pre-hospital providers, but all providers. I totally agree. I continue to be a bit mystified by the nuances and management of outpatient type 1 diabetes, but let's try and break it down simply. The overview for me and what I like to share with people is for somebody who's type 1, you're going to be on insulin for life and you're taking either injections or you're on a, a pump. And the injections, there's, there's basically two types of injectable insulin to simplify, and that is long-acting and rapid-acting. And so you and I, if you don't have type 1 or you don't have type 2, you, you and I have this homeostatic relationship between insulin and glucagon. Glucagon is a hormone, as is insulin. It's a hormone that is created in the alpha cells of the pancreas and, and released basically to help release the stores of glucose that insulin stores. So insulin is going to store energy as glycogen within the liver. Insulin is going to store energy as 
glycogen in the muscle tissue, and then we're going to store as fat. And then glucagon's job is to sort of come along and undo those things, release those glycogen stores from the liver, release proteins, so proteins and glycogen from uh, muscle tissue, and then to burn fat to release ketone bodies. And so glucagon, insulin work together. We have this homeostatic relationship. And, and in somebody who is taking long-acting insulin, the, the point there is to mimic as best we can that homeostatic relationship. You just want to have this background insulin. So long-acting insulin, it's injected into the adipose tissue and it releases slow release over you know a 12 to 24-hour period, depending on how long-acting it is. For most people, they use the 12-hour, and that's brands like Lantus. And so the idea there is, is that you're not necessarily... Uh, treating a high, you're not necessarily treating a high glucose level or bolusing for food. You're just trying to achieve that background insulin that we all sort of have. And then with the rapid acting insulin, this is a humalog. The onset is anywhere between uh, 15 to 45 minutes. And it is, when we say rapid acting, your, your peak effect is right about in an hour, uh, between 45 minutes and an hour. And so why we're taking that is we're taking that to bolus for the food that we eat. And, and so that's why we're, and it, the treatment regimen is going to be bolusing for the food that we eat. So you have long acting insulin that is trying to accomplish that background basal insulin that we all have, and then rapid acting insulin that is essentially trying to bolus for the food that, that we eat and cover those carbohydrates or that, uh, the conversion of glucose and get it out of the bloodstream. That's the, the whole goal to normalize those blood glucose levels. And so somebody who's taking injections, they're doing once or twice a day long acting and then every time they eat or snack, they're injecting insulin, rapid acting insulin in order to, to get that blood glucose normalized. Now, if you're, the other option is to be on a pump, which uh, a lot of people are doing these days. So the pump options, they have tubed pumps. So the injection site will be basically be tied to the pump. So you're going to load the pump up with uh, rapid acting. So you're no longer taking the long acting insulin. You're loading the pump up with Humalog or another rapid acting insulin. And instead of the slow release with that long acting injection, you're actually just slowly pumping in just a little bit of this basal insulin to have that background for what we all need just basically to survive. We, we all need to have insulin at various levels through the day. And then when we go to eat something, you'll bolus through the pump and hopefully be able to get the insulin to carbohydrate, uh, carbohydrate ratio correct in order to make sure that the blood glucose levels don't go high. And so those are the two treatment modalities for people with type 1 diabetes. So what do I do if I have a patient with a pump who is either hypoglycemic or conversely hyperglycemic? You know, the, the pump in the situation, and, I, and I'll give you my personal experience with my son and seeing some of his pretty scary hypoglycemic episodes, my personal feeling on the pump is it's rarely going to be, when you're talking about type 1 diabetes and hypoglycemia, this is rarely going to be from a catastrophic pump failure. The majority of time, and, and this is from my clinical experience as well, the majority of time that we see people who are hypoglycemic it is a miscalculation or a miss uh, a dose with insulin. And, and so a very typical situation for us, my son's 10 years old now, and I'll say, you know, the, the conversation is, hey, Liam, are you, you hungry? You want some lunch? Yeah, dad, I want some lunch. All right, I'll make you a sandwich. What kind of sandwich do you want? I want a ham sandwich. All right, what do you want to have with? I want to have Doritos. All right, so look, 
the sandwich, the Doritos, about 45 carbohydrates for all of this. I'm going to do the math and I'm going to figure out the insulin to carbohydrate ratio. I'm going to try to get some insulin on board because it takes about 15 minutes before we start to see the effects of that injected insulin or the insulin that's delivered by the pump. So I'm going to give them the dose and then I'm going to make the sandwich. I'm going to set it down in front of them. Hey, Liam, you ready? Here you go. Here's the sandwich. I dosed you for it. Go ahead and eat. I'm going to go back, clean up the dishes, go about my business and go check on my son. I, I see the dog eating the ham sandwich and my son's out jumping on the trampoline. All right. So now I know that we have a problem. Because what we have on board is we have insulin on board with very no or little glucose. And so we'll start to see mental status changes and anxiety uh, in my son at around 65, 60. And we, we really get into a lot of anxiety right around 50. 50 is where we start to see a little bit of a panic mode. We start to see some physiological changes. The thing that I would always see as a paramedic in the field, a very common presentation for hypoglycemia was unconscious, unresponsive, tachycardic, diaphoretic. And I'm not sure that I ever really was able to walk through the pathophysiology of that, but seeing it in my son, you're able to sort of go through these steps and understand it a little bit better. So he gets under 50, he gets into the 40s, and now you're seeing that wired connection between the, the brain and the adrenal glands. And so we're, he's releasing epinephrine. He's in a fight or flight mode. So his heart rate is speeding up. His pupils are dilating out. He's getting a little bit clammy. He's getting a little bit flushed. And, and it's in those moments where you really start to be concerned because you, you understand now his oxygen consumption has just gone up. His glucose consumption has just gone up with that release of epinephrine. Going back to your original question, if it were my son, like I said, the, the instance of pump failure is so low. And so what I would like for you to do as a healthcare provider treating my son is to treat the hypoglycemia, treat the problem, address it, do the blood sugar check. And we know that, you know, a lot of our glucometers nowadays, they'll read low and that's basically under 20. They're not very specific. And so find out what the blood glucose level is, start that IV or give the glucagon if we can't get an IV and let's get that blood glucose level up so that we can problem solve so that we can figure out what's going on. And if we, if you had a catastrophic pump failure, the, the reality is they, the patient has received so much insulin at that point, there's probably not going to be not much movement that you're going to have just giving a little bit of sugar. And in that case, if we have our standard treatment for hypoglycemia, I would say then I, then I would assume some sort of a pump failure. Uh, but our standard treatment for hypoglycemia, whether we're talking about glucagon, whether we're talking about D10, you're, you're going to have a change in the patient's mental status. You're going to get them to wake up uh, and, and be able to problem solve. And, and, hey, how did we get here? Your blood sugar was here. Can you tell us what happened? Oh, I, I dosed myself, but I did not eat. Those are the things that I think, you know, the, the steps that we should take. And, and for as much of a pain in the butt as it is for, for me to, or for my wife most times, to load up that pump with insulin, to find a spot, to move that pump around, for my 10-year-old to have to do this every three days, I would prefer you not pull it off of his body, although it's not its not the end of the world. I would just prefer not because it's its highly unlikely that that's the case. So we should start with just our normal treatment, give them glucose and see if that fixes the problem. If it fixes the problem, then we can, you know, sit down and think about why did this happen? Did we dose insulin for a meal and then not eat the meal? And if that's the case, then there's not much more for us to do 
they eat a sandwich, they eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and continue to use the pump as they should. Yeah, if Ross, we, and you know what you just described? You just described a situation where I'm going to need more insulin for my son. So if he goes hypoglycemic and I need an ambulance there, you guys are going to give him IV dextrose. You, you're going to wake him up and then you're going to say, hey, we need some complex carbohydrates. We need you to eat something that's going to be sustainable so that A, you don't go low again and B, we don't have to come back. And and so I need insulin for that. If I don't give him insulin for the the rebound, because that sugar is going to take his, his, uh, his glucose levels higher. And then whatever complex carbohydrates you recommend or the paramedics recommend that we eat, I'm going to have to give insulin for that, or he's gonna. We're gonna have the opposite problem. Now we're going to three, four, five hundred uh, for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and I and now I don't have a pump on to to treat with insulin. So, so it's I, I would say, uh, don't start pressing buttons on the pump. Don't start messing with it, and uh, leave it alone. Problem solve. Treat what's in front of you, and 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 deal with uh, a catastrophic pump failure. It should be fairly obvious. Your treatments will not work. And at that point, I think it's reasonable to remove the pump and obviously get them emergent to where, you know, we're going to get some more definitive care in the emergency department. We don't want you to get the impression that you're going to do any lasting harm to the patient by disconnecting the pump. When in doubt, the safest thing to do is to remove the insulin source from the patient. But what Chief Harper is describing here is more finesse and higher level thinking than just show up and disconnect the pump. Obviously, if the patient is still ill, despite your treatments, you have to disconnect the pump and take that out of the equation. So our hypoglycemic patient, we look for those signs of fight or flight, mental status change, diaphoresis, tachycardia. We diagnose with our finger stick and we treat with intravenous dextrose. Or if we can't obtain IV access, then intramuscular glucagon. And then if able to tolerate oral, we'll feed some complex carbohydrates. But let's take a second to discuss the complexities of the various hyperglycemic syndromes. The interesting thing about hyperglycemia, and one of the things that we've learned with my son is that I always thought that hyperglycemia and DKA were necessarily tied together. I like that you asked the question about hyperglycemia sort of separate from diabetic ketoacidosis, because hyperglycemia in and of itself, especially in type 2 diabetes, we're, we're talking about the risk for dehydration, you know, you're, you're looking at a patient who's has the potential to have hyperosmolar, hyperglycemic, non-ketotic, we call it syndrome now, but hyperosmolar, hyperglycemic, non-ketotic syndrome, uh, is, is exactly what we were talking about before. So those blood glucose levels rise, the body reacts by increasing osmotic diuresis. We're opening up the floodgates and now we're looking at weakness and dehydration without the diabetic ketoacidosis because we're not in a starvation state. And somebody who has type 2 diabetes, they're still producing insulin. Their body is not going to go into a starvation state. It doesn't mean that they can't be severely dehydrated and sick. It just means they're not going to be burning fat. They're not going to be burning muscle tissue. Not, they're not going to be creating uh, those ketone bodies that go through the bloodstream to the liver where the liver converts them into ketones. Um, so they're not going to be at risk for the acidosis associated with ketones. But certainly hyperglycemia can precipitate DKA um, because if we don't have, uh, if we get to the point where the insulin that's in his body is used up, and so now we're entering into, in the face of a high blood glucose level, we're entering into a starvation state because the cells of the body now have no more insulin. Uh, and so the, 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 more, the, the more sugar that we have in the bloodstream, the insulin that we have in the bloodstream, we're gonna store, 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 
once we remove or lose or use all the insulin that's there, we're going to end up going into a starvation state. And, and so it's that starvation state that triggers uh, the, the release of glucagon, which uh, ends up causing us to burn. So uh, proteolysis, lipolysis, we're burning muscle tissue, we're burning fat, releasing those ketone bodies, and then we're moving into diabetic ketoacidosis. And so it, it's an interesting uh, question, and I like the way that you pose it, the difference between hyperglycemia, HHNS, and, and DKA. When there's insulin resistance as in type 2 diabetes, or if there's a backup of insulin as in type 1, this leads to a deficiency of glucose within the cells, and a backup of glucose in the bloodstream. When this occurs, the cells start signaling the CNS that they don't have glucose to make energy. In a response to this, the body starts utilizing alternative sources for energy. The body begins to break down fat and muscle to form ketone bodies. However, this is less than ideal because you don't get as much energy through this pathway and it leads to the production of lactic acid. This increase in acid will lead to further diuresis as our body attempts to rid hydrogen ions through the urine. And it will lead to our deep, rapid, small respirations as the body attempts to further buffer the bloodstream by exhaling CO2. So that's how we got to diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA. Now, what should we do about it? Most of us don't have insulin on the ambulance, but all of the mechanisms we talked about, the osmotic diuresis, the loss of hydrogen ions in the urine, the abdominal pain, the vomiting, and the rapid respirations, all of these are going to lead to profound loss of fluids. Yeah, so I think you're right. This is the mainstay of pre-hospital treatment. But like everything else, we have to be smart about our treatments and know their dangers and limitations. I know in paramedic school, I was taught that, you know, patients who are in DK can be profoundly dehydrated uh, and, and, you know, large concern for electrolyte disturbance. Uh, and, and so these are very, very delicate situations, acidosis, dehydration. Um, a lot of times when we burn a lot of fat, we end up having cytokines and things that accumulate in the stomach that can cause nausea, that can cause vomiting. So you can have a problem on top of everything else going on that you're losing fluid by vomiting um, and, and having other problems. Um, so the, the treatment here is, as much as we want to be aggressive with fluid, I, I, just a, a little word of caution, especially in pediatrics, um, I would say treat profound hypotension treat what's in front of you based on their mental status and their presentation. But I wouldn't blindly just throw fluid at a patient who's in diabetic ketoacidosis. And I don't think in any state, in any situation um, in, in healthcare, we just do that as a matter of course. Uh, just somebody says, go ahead and open up the IV bag and give them as much as you want. Um, and, and I think if we look at the delicate process that you guys go through in the, in the emergency department, and, and then the patient going, uh, who's in DK up to the floor, it's not just a bolus of insulin that's going to fix this. It's not just a bolus of uh, potassium that's going to fix this either, unless you're looking for another outcome. Uh, you know, the, the reality is that this is a slow process of replacing uh, the um, missing pieces here, the, the uh, missing electrolytes, replacing insulin, uh, and, and getting the patient to normalize. It's not a process that happens in a matter of minutes. Yeah, that's a good point. And actually, you talked about 
the number one killer of uh, type one diabetics under the age of 24 is DKA. Um, but the, actually the number one killer in DKA is us as healthcare providers. It's iatrogenic. It's, we were too aggressive with our treatments. We gave too much insulin and didn't recognize how hypoglycemic they were, or we forgot to check the potassium and replete the potassium before we started the insulin and made them profoundly hypokalemic. So it's a very good point to be thoughtful of your treatments and have a reason for them. And a lot of paramedics want, they want data behind that. Well, how much, how much fluid should I get? Give them exactly and so I've been pushed on this particular subject and and you know the best that I can say is treat profound hypotension as, as, as you would per protocol um, but but we don't blindly open that up and give them liters and liters of fluid um, it, it, for no reason because we suspect that they're profoundly dehydrated and and the thought process there is correct there can be profound dehydration uh, it, it would be the same. I would liken the, the thought process in fluid here to nasally intubating somebody who's breathing 40 times a minute with Kuzmal respirations. It, it, you know, grabbing somebody and, and putting a nasal tube in and trying to take over their breathing is not going to help them. Uh, they're, they're essentially trying not to die. And, and so. And you can't breathe as fast as they can breathe or as big as they can to blow that acid off. So if they can do it themselves, that's the best thing. Exactly. And, and intervening in that situation is not going to be beneficial for that patient. So it's a, to me, it's the same thought process, and, you know, not just dumping fluid, not being too aggressive with airways uh, and, and breathing and allowing their body to do what they need to do. And if the patient goes into cardiac arrest, that's not a great situation. That's that's not a not likely to be a great outcome. Cardiac arrest from DKA, you guys uh, in the emergency department are going to have your hands full. Chief Harper advocates for a thoughtful approach here, which is great, especially in pediatric patients. Those are the cases where you can actually do damage with fluids. But in the end, treat the patient in front of you and don't just treat everyone the same. That being said, these patients are likely going to be dehydrated. If you see signs of dehydration like dry mucous membranes, poor skin turgor, hypotension, etc., believe it and treat it with a fluid bolus. Don't blindly give liters and liters of fluids without evidence of dehydration. Now, a liter in a hyperglycemic adult is not likely to harm anything. But beyond that, be thoughtful. In pediatrics, remember, we don't bolus by the liter. Look at your resources and determine what an appropriate 10cc, maybe 20cc per kilogram bolus is. It is way too easy to give small kids way too much fluids. And in kids, they're at a high risk for cerebral edema from DKA. And that risk can be severely increased by giving too much fluids. Giving a, a large amount of fluid when you have uh, such an electrolyte disturbance uh, can put you in a place where you have this massive fluid shift. And, and so the, the, and our own physicians here in the emergency department and our pediatric department have done some, some good work around this and some studies on this as well um, in just recognizing that inundating the body with normal saline uh, in a situation where you have diabetic ketoacidosis, electrolyte disturbance, um, can put them at greater risk for uh, these fluid shifts, which cause cerebral edema. The, the outcome there being very, very high risk for disability and death. Um, this particular case that I was talking about, um, this child ended up um, 
passing away a few months later from complications with the cerebral edema. Uh, but, but this pattern in this picture is something that in my research uh, for the lecture that I do is something that I came across over and over and over again. And I understand that it's anecdotal, but the, the point being, uh, there's a lot of good research out there that says we should be very judicious about the fluid that we give, especially to pediatrics. And, uh, and you know, any endocrinologist uh, who's worked with pediatrics and kids with type 1 diabetes, any diabetologist, they, they will scream from the rooftops, be careful with fluid with kids. And, uh, and, and this isn't something that we should be um, running off, just giving them a ton of fluid. Good for you that you check that blood sugar. Good for you that you recognize that this patient's in diabetic ketoacidosis. Now don't jump to that next step, which is just give them a ton of fluid, get them to the hospital emergently, get them treated and, and let's slowly but surely replace the things that are missing and get them back to where they need to be. So now that I know all the pathophysiology about diabetes, I guess I, I really only need to check a BGL when somebody's diaphoretic and has dilated pupils, right? No, you know, and, and I know that you're baiting me there. You know, the, the, the reality for me is anybody that we're putting an IV in, and, and I, like to, I like to think of it from this perspective, anybody that we think that needs an IV uh, for weakness, dehydration, abdominal pain, an odd presentation of really anything, um, you know, the, the thing for me is test one drop, test one drop. And T1D, type 1 diabetes, test 1 drop, I, I want to push that home for people, drive that home, drive that message as much as I can. Culturally, uh, working with, with paramedics for so many years and, and being a paramedic myself, one of the things that, that we were always taught was to use your assessment, your history, your physical your exams, the things that uh, you see, your your pattern recognition, your experience, uh, you know, to to sort of drive your thought process. And and I think the idea that you can rule out type one diabetes with a history and physical exam is folly. It's just not true. You can't. You need a glucometer for that. It would be like me sitting here looking across the table at you saying. This guy's blood pressure is fine. I, I know it because his color temperature and condition. And, and we know that there's a good likelihood that your blood pressure is fine, but I don't know it until I test it. And we wouldn't accept that kind of care from a paramedic bringing a patient to the hospital saying, I didn't need to check his uh, blood pressure because his color temperature and his mental status is okay. Um, and, and so we, we necessarily need to let go of some of that thought process around checking a blood glucose level, some of that culture, let it go, uh, and realize that we cannot rule out new onset type 1 and even new onset type 2 uh, without checking a blood glucose level. I can remember walking into the emergency department with a patient and having an RN look at me and say, what was his blood glucose level? And I would stand there for 20 or 30 minutes with a dissertation about why I didn't need to check a blood glucose level. And, and really, it wasn't until my own son you know, went through this long process that he really did not need to go through. This was not a fun time in our lives. Um, it was very difficult. What that kid needed was insulin. Uh, and, and we prolonged that process because I didn't recognize what I was looking at. And I didn't think to check a blood sugar. And, and nor did our pediatrician. And, and so I, I think the, the biggest point here is don't be afraid to use that glucometer, test those blood sugars uh, often. And, and, you know, 
try to be effective in minimizing or, or, or slowing down the process of misdiagnosing these patients. It's, it's important to say also, type 1 diabetes is on the rise in the United States. You know, one of the things that, that was true for us is that we don't have any history of this in our family. Uh, the, there's, there's no autoimmune disease that we were able to find even after the fact when we went searching in either side of the family. Uh, and, and so type 1 diabetes is on the rise, and they don't know why. They think it's a, a factor of uh, environmental triggers. They think it can be some genetics, but they don't really know. Uh, the scientists just don't really know. But what we do know is, is that it is increasing. It is on the rise. Um, they expect uh, there are, uh, I think, 1.25 million in the United States right now with type 1 diabetes. They expect that number by 2050 to quadruple. You're looking at 5 million. And that's not an adjusted rate per population. Population. They're talking about this rising year over year over year, and that's really concerning. So you're you're looking at about 80 people per day nationally who are newly diagnosed, and so you're going to see this as a healthcare provider. You're going to see this in the field. If you're an EMT, if you're a paramedic, and you you have to put this in your repertoire of things to be able to understand, be able to uh, identify, and be able to to diagnose. Still not going to check that pulse on. No. <laughs> Did I ever tell you about the the uh, alligator attack that I ran? No. So we were out on uh, Sanibel Island. It's a beautiful island out there, and uh, so we get a call. And is this thing still recording? Yeah, of course. Turn that thing off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll tell you when you turn that okay. thing off. Loud and clear, number two. Go ahead.